Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu, Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we glorify you, Father. We thank you for your love that you've given. We thank you for your salvation you've provided. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together as Mishpacha's family on your holy Shabbat to worship you, to interact with you, to experience your presence, your might and power in our midst. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it be your word heard, that it be your voice received, your words received, that nothing of me be involved except that which you have already ordained for this purpose. Father, I pray that you move mightily and powerfully in our hearts and our lives today. In the name of Yeshua, Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. This week we're in Parsha to Ramah. Uh, it begins with Exodus 25, verse 1. Um, I won't say who, but somebody uh, approached me this week, uh, I think it was Wednesday night at prayer, and said, said I'm really looking forward to your message, Rabbi, because this was the most boring Parsha I've ever read. And, and they said, there's, there's an entire chapter devoted to curtains. And, and I laugh because he's, he's right. There's an entire chapter devoted to curtains, and, and it can be rather monotonous and boring. If you think this is boring, though, wait till we get to Leviticus. That's when things really start to get bogged down. And I, uh, I, I tell people, you know, when you're trying to, to read the Bible on a daily basis, when you're trying to make the Word of God uh, a, a real part, a tangible part of your life, one of the worst things you can do, in my opinion, is try and start at Genesis 1 and plow through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation because you're never going to get there. At all. I, I've rarely ever met a person that was successful at doing that. Um, and, and the reason why is because, typically speaking, somewhere around Leviticus 8, 9, 10, you're like, uh, okay, I'm going to go from three chapters a day to one chapter a day. And, and around 12, you're like, all right, I'll get a couple of verses in today. And, and a few days later, you're not even picking it up anymore because you're just, you get bogged down and bored. Um, and so I strongly encourage, if you're, you're reading the Bible on a daily basis, which you should be, that, uh, that, that you find a, a Bible reading plan that, that spreads across the entirety of the Bible every day, something that you're, you're digging into the Torah, the prophets, the writings, the, the gospels, the, the epistles, and so on, every day, a little bit of everything, uh, and you'll find that things really start to meld a lot better there. You'll start to really grasp and understand things. And then uniquely, you'll also notice that everywhere you go, when you hear somebody speak about the Bible or a, a preacher preach or whatever, you're going to notice that you just read that the other day. Um, because you're reading a little bit of everything, and it's all fresh on your mind and your heart. And I can recommend a Bible reading plan to you uh, after service if you want that has you reading the Bible just short of four times a year, every year, and, and it's actually pretty easy to do. Um, I like it a lot. It's what I use. But aside from that, I, wanna, I said all that to say this, that although there are parts of the Torah, there are parts of the Bible in general that can be very monotonous, that can be very boring, um, the, the reality is, is it's God's Word, which means it's alive, it's breathing, and it's life-giving. And when we dig into the Word, ignoring our, look, I'm ADD, uh, you, you probably just saw me playing with the creak sound in the stage while I was praying because uh, I, I heard it and it caught my attention. Um, the, the reality is, 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 yes, the Bible can be monotonous, it can, parts of it can be boring. There are things that are, are going to be confusing or hard to grasp or understand and that much more difficult to dig through. The reality is, is the Word of God is important. 
And as believers, if we're going to live a faithful life, we have to be in his word. And so we have to get into even those parts that we don't necessarily enjoy or we don't necessarily like. Like, everybody likes the chase scenes. It's cool to read Joshua. There's all kinds of action. Um, but we've got to read Leviticus too. We've got to read uh, Ecclesiastes. We've got to read, you know, these books that, that otherwise may seem a little more uh, uh, slow or, or tedious or monotonous because there's life in there. And you can't have full life in the Word of God if you're not getting the fullness of the Word of God. Amen? So I say, say all of that just to, to say that I agree with you. Um, an entire chapter on curtains is weird. But um, <laughs> all right, Exodus chapter uh, 25, verse 1 is where we're picking up at this week with Parsha Teramah. Um, it says, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, tell B'nai Israel to take up an offering for me from anyone whose heart compels him. You are to take up my offering. Notice the way this is worded. From anyone whose heart compels him. Not just go around and shove a plate in somebody's face, but anyone whose heart compels him. The Lord, the, the, what they're, and we're going to read it in a second, what they're building is not just you know, a building. It's not just something random. They're building a, a literal dwelling place for the presence of the Lord to reside in the midst of his people. Why in the world would the Lord want to reside in the midst of a building that was provided by people that didn't want him in the first place? Right? And so he says, take up an offering from those who whose heart leads them to give, from those who willingly give of the heart. And then we go down to verse 8. He says, have them make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You are to make it uh, all precisely according to everything that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of the furnishings within, just so you must make it. Uh, in, in verse uh, 9 here, the, where it says tabernacle in the English, in the Hebrew, the word is mishkan. Uh, it's where we get the, the, the English word tabernacle from is what it means. But the root of Mishkan is Shekan. And Shekan means to dwell, all right? Uh, literally. So the tabernacle is a place for God to dwell. Now, that word may also sound familiar to you if you've ever heard the word Shekhinah. The divine glory of God is how we word it, the divine presence of God. Um, the Shekhan is actually the root word of Shekhinah, and it literally, means, uh, the, the, it literally means that it is his glory or the glory dwelling in our midst, his presence in our midst. So the, the Mishkan is a place for the Shekhinah of Adonai to Shekhan, to dwell in our presence. That was the whole purpose of the tabernacle. Israel was commanded to give of a willing heart for the purpose of building a tabernacle, a Mishkan, for his presence to dwell among us. Um, and then we see throughout the scriptures as we continue to read through over and over again that the Lord says, I cannot dwell in the midst of sin, so if there's sin in your midst, get it out. Whether it's straighten up your life or get rid of that person out of the community because it will ruin the entire community. So we see this image over and over again. We look through verse 3 through 7 of chapter 25 and what we realize is there's a whole list of items that the Lord has prescribed to be used in the tabernacle. And he's very particular, he's very specific on what items should be used. And if you look at some of these, you got to wonder, these are people coming out of slavery, right? They were slaves in Egypt. Where in the world did they come by copious amounts of gold and silver, uh, uh, of blue and purple and scarlet cloth and linen, which are all extremely expensive items back then? Where do they come across bronze and spices and so on? How did a bunch of slaves end up with all of this stuff? Where did they get it from? Where did it come from? And one of the things we realize is if we backtrack in Exodus, we realize that the Lord tells us that when he led Israel out of Egypt, that they left with the wealth of Egypt. Egypt gave them all of the gold and the silver and the bronze and everything else that was necessary. So before the Lord ever sent Israel out of Egypt, he had already prepared a way 
for Israel to have what was necessary to build a dwelling place for him in their midst. He had already prepared the way for it to happen. And so all of this was just in the hands of the Israelites, and all they had to do was willingly hand it over to the Lord. Now we read later on in Exodus that they had compiled so much stuff. People were so willing to give. Their hearts drove so much for them to give to the service of the Lord and to the building of the tabernacle that they had an overabundance And the craftsmen had to tell them to stop bringing stuff because there was too much and they couldn't find a way to use it all. Um, It's beautiful to think about. But as we look at all this, the the entire purpose to this was that Israel make a tabernacle, a temporal dwelling place for the presence of the Lord in our midst. And in the tabernacle, verse 14, it says of chapter 25, you are to put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark in order to carry the ark, the poles that remain in uh, in the rings of the ark and not to be taken from it. You are to put the testimony or the tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on, the testimony, the witness between Israel and God about their covenant with him. You are to put the testimony, which I will give you into the ark. Now, they're building this ark that the presence of the Lord is going to reside upon, that the, the, the testimony, the witness, the, the, the ketubah, the marriage certificate, the marriage contract between Israel and God, they're to put this inside the ark of the covenant that they're about to make, but they don't have these tablets yet. Moses is still up on the mountain receiving all of this image, this download from the Lord. He's receiving the blueprints of, of the tabernacle of the temple. And if you pay attention, he tells Moses to build it exactly as he sees in heaven. And we realize later on in the scriptures that it talks about the new heaven, the new Jerusalem descending upon the earth and the tabernacle in heaven and so on. And here's what I want to look at. And, and I think this is vitally important for us as believers to wrap our heads around and to grasp as the Lord makes it very clear that he wants to dwell in the midst of his people, right? He wants to dwell in our lives. He wants to interact with us. He wants to live with us. He wants to, to, to direct our footsteps, as Proverbs says. In order for that to happen, we have to willingly allow his presence to reside in our midst. He's not going to force himself on us. He's not going to take away our free will. He wants us to choose him because he first chose us. He wants us to choose him because he loves us. He wants us to, to choose him because he desires us. But he's never going to force us to. He tells Israel to take up an offering only from those with a willing heart to give. Only from those willing to sacrifice these goods. I mean, look, you're talking about slaves. They've got boo-coodles of gold and silver and bronze. They're, they went from rags to riches in a very literal sense. Um, anybody that's ever lived at rock bottom and made their way up to halfway decent realizes when you got something good, you want to hold on to it, right? Especially when you've experienced the worst of the worst, you want to hold on to it. But the Lord says, but I want you to give it back to me because what I want you to hold on to is me, not the stuff, not the goods, not the, the materials, I want you to hold on to me. I want you to grasp me. I want you to, to cleave to me because I want to be in your presence. See, in the garden, and we talked about this, and if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen to the podcast from session one of A Rock Encounter. We talked about this, that in the garden, the whole point to creation of, of humanity was that we could reside in the presence of the Lord. Notice when, when God came to walk in the middle of the day with Adam and Eve, they had already gone and prepared themselves by covering their nakedness because they knew God was coming. It wasn't a surprise. God didn't just pop on the scene and go, hey, I thought I'd come check in. Wait, what's going on here? I believe that Adam and Eve walked with God in the middle of the day in the garden every single day. 
It wasn't something new. It was something they experienced over and over again, which is why they ran to cover themselves in shame because they knew the presence of the Lord was coming to meet with them. God created us to be in his presence. We sinned and caused ourselves to be separated from his presence, but he didn't give up on us. Instead, he made a way through the Mishkan, the tabernacle in Israel, for his presence to reside in our midst. Because of sin, we cannot be in his presence, but his presence can be in us. And so he made a way for his presence to dwell in the midst of the people. And that was a foreshadowing of what would happen once the blood of the Lamb, Messiah, Yeshua, was poured out upon the stake in Jerusalem and we were given freedom from sin and freedom from death as consequence of sin. His presence now resides within us. We still are sinful humanity, so we cannot literally be in his presence in the sense of sitting in eternity with him at this moment. Now we can because we're washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, but He's now made it possible for his presence not just to be in a building that we have to go to, but for his presence to literally be within us, which is what the tabernacle was a foreshadowing for, of in the first place. And that's a foreshadowing of when we are restored ultimately again for what God had originally planned, which was for us to be in his presence for eternity. So it's a process to get us there. And the Lord says, I don't want you to, to do this because you have to. But God's breath is residing within all of creation. Whether we believe in Messiah or not, his breath resides in all of creation. That's what the word of God tells us. He breathed his breath into humanity. His breath is within us. Whether we like it there or not, it is there. Whether we believe in him or not, it is there. Whether we want it there or not, it is there. But God never forces us, never demands of us to give him our lives to cherish our relationship with him. Instead, he asks of us to willingly give our lives as a living sacrifice to him. He asks us to willingly walk in faithfulness with him. We go to the Haftarah Parsha uh, from 1 Kings chapter 6. Um, let's actually go back a little bit to... Uh, I added this in during the, the Torah service, so give me just a second while I look at There we go. Verse 27 of chapter 5. Um, this just hit me all of a sudden during the Torah service. I thought it was of great value. Uh, verse 27 of chapter 5, 1 Kings. says, King Solomon also imposed, this is in, in this part of the scriptures, this part of 1 Kings, Solomon, uh, the son of David, the king of Israel, is building the temple in Jerusalem. And he's building this huge, ornate, beautiful, permanent dwelling place for the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And so in verse 27 it says, King Solomon also imposed forced laborers from all Israel. The levy was 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month. They would stay a month in Lebanon, then two months at home. Uh, Adoniram uh, was over the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 porters and 80,000 stone cutters, cutters in the mountains beside Solomon's chief officers that were over the work, 3,000 who su supervised the people who were doing the work. So in, in Exodus, when God says, build me a temporal dwelling place after the image and likeness of what Moses sees in heaven. Notice the way we're going here. After the image and likeness of what Moses sees in heaven, the tabernacle is what God asked for, a temporal dwelling place. So in Exodus, when we're commanded to build a temporal dwelling place for the presence of the Lord, the Lord says, only take from those that are willing to give, right? And for those that are going to build the tabernacle and the furnishings of the tabernacle, he has certain people who are willing to serve him that he has then blessed above and beyond with his spirit, with his Ruach HaKodesh, to be able to build these things as God has ordained and prescribed. But he says, only take of those that are willing. But then we go to 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, when Solomon is building the temple, which God never asked for, as a matter of fact, David said, I want to build you a palace. Why do I have this glorious palace? But the God of Israel stays in a tent. God said, I never wanted a temple. I never wanted a permanent place. Temples are what the false gods have. I don't need that. 
He never asked for a temple. Now, he allowed us to build a temple, and it was part of prophecy and so on and so forth. But it wasn't what God asked for, and it wasn't built in the image and likeness of heaven because the, the image and likeness that Moses saw in heaven, the blueprint that the tabernacle on earth was made after, was a temporal dwelling place. And so in 1 Kings, when Solomon's building the temple, what is it that he says he did? Instead of it being take from those of a willing heart, building something God never asked for, building something permanent, something that ultimately, it was the tabernacle when Israel went to war, the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of the Lord went with us. Once the temple was built in Jerusalem, the Ark stayed there. The tabernacle stayed there. We actually walked away from the Lord to go do stuff and then came back. Previous to the temple, previous to a permanent dwelling place, the, the presence of the Lord went with us. Very literally, we carried the ark with us everywhere we went, and the present went with us. And then we stationized it and said, all right, we'll come back to you eventually, God, but we're just going to go over here for now. And so when we were building the temple, Solomon forced Israel to give, forced Israel to work, forced them to take part. It wasn't a willing heart anymore. It was a mandate. It was required. Suddenly, everything changes. I personally think that although the temple, uh, I believe, was a part of God's plan, I believe prophetically it's very important to things, I also believe it was one of the worst mistakes that Israel ever made was building a physical permanent temple because we literally would walk away from the Lord, whereas his presence led us before. Now we go out and do our own thing and leave him behind and come back to him. See, the reality is, is that tabern the tabernacle, the mishkan, the temporary dwelling place for the Lord's presence was a foreshadowing of you and I having been bought by the blood of the Lamb, having been restored in His glory because of the, uh, the, the blood of Messiah Yeshua providing salvation, having been filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, we now, as we said during the Torah service, we now are a temporal dwelling place for the presence of the Lord. We now are Mishkan. We now are a tabernacle. But only those of a willing heart. Notice even with salvation, look, God's God. He's the master of all. He's the creator of everything. He spoke and everything came into existence. Do you not think that just as easily as he spoke and over the course of seven days, everything that exists on the face of the planet came to be, do you not think God could just as easily speak and every soul on the face of, him, of the world would accept his salvation? But he doesn't want that. He wants a willing heart. He gave us free will to choose him or to walk away from him because he wants us but he wants us to want him. He wants us to want him. And so salvation is only given freely to those who choose it. Those of a willing heart, being made a tabernacle, a temporal dwelling place for the presence of the Lord, a place where his Ruach HaKodesh resides within us, is only available to those with a willing heart. Not to anyone and everyone. It is freely given. All could take advantage of it. But only those with a willing heart will. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 says, Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We've got to understand, yes, Exodus 25, 26, 27 may be kind of boring. There's an entire chapter about curtains, and frankly, I don't care about curtains, all right? I don't care about decoration. My, my wife likes to decorate the house, and so I let her. I don't care about it. She asked me, what do you think about this? I frankly don't care. 
As long as it's not pink and stupid, I'm okay with it. I just don't care. But there's an entire chapter about curtains. Next week, we read an entire couple of chapters about the garments, the clothing that the high priest will wear. We read about the, the, the pillars that are built for the tabernacle. We read about the, the way that the ark is shaped and designed and to be carried and so on and so forth. Very finite details. Very specific finite details. Right? Notice as we look through this Parsha, Parsha to Ramah, next week's Parsha, notice how specific God is about his tabernacle dwelling, his temporal dwelling place, the tabernacle. Notice how specific he is about the way he wants everything to mimic what, what Moses sees in the blueprint of heaven. And then we pray the Lord's Prayer where we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But then we as the temporal dwelling place, do we truly, do we truly, do we truly desire to allow the specificity of what a walk of faith looks like to rule and reign in our lives. You got to understand, God was very detail-oriented when it came to the tabernacle. Everything had to be exact and precise. Everything had to be exact and precise because it was a, a mirror image of heaven, of what was going on in the tabernacle in heaven. He didn't mince words. He didn't waste words. He didn't spend a chapter talking about curtains just for the sake of talking about curtains. It was a foreshadowing of our own lives. See, we think very often as believers that once we accept Messiah, all is good and we can do whatever the heck we want and we can go about acting as we want and living as we want and it doesn't matter anymore because the blood of the Lamb is on us and there's no other detail or requirement to life. But the Word of God tells us to live our lives as a living sacrifice. Here in 1 Corinthians, we just read, it says, Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Ruach, HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, who is in you? By the way, if the Spirit is in us, the presence of God is in us, the present cannot reside in the midst of sin, and we are sinful. And I don't mean just that we're a sinful human and we fall short of the glory period. I mean, like, we're literally in the act of sin. Then we're telling the presence of God we don't want Him in us. And what's worse than a believer bought by the blood of the Lamb rejecting the blood of the Lamb? Amen? Your body is a temple of the Ruach HaKodesh who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. How do we glorify God? How do we glorify Him in our body? How do we live out a life that is worthy of the specificity that is worthy of the detail orientation of a God who commanded the tabernacle to be built after the mirror image, the blueprints that Moses saw in heaven in our own lives. Because I'm telling you right now, we as believers in the 21st century, we are lazy. We want to get away, get away with bare minimum. I mean, most believers, I say they walk by what I call fire insurance. Their faith in the Lord is merely insurance that they don't burn in hell. It's not that they necessarily care about living a righteous and holy life. As a matter of fact, a lot of times people walking out of houses of God, you really couldn't tell the difference between them or somebody that was just out at the parades in New Orleans or Mobile, right? We don't really typically live our lives as something set apart righteous and holy, but that's what we're commanded to do. If God had such detailed orientation and specificity and what was merely a shadow of us, a foreshadowing of us, do you not think that that same detail orientation and specificity is a part of what he expects of us? If his Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit, is what breathed the words of life and inspired the words of life to come forth from the authors of the Bible, and that same Spirit of God is what now resides within us, 
Do you not think he expects the same specificity and detail orientation of a godly lifestyle from us as he prescribes and describes in his word? He is detail-oriented. There's an entire chapter on curtains, not just for the sake of throwing away curtains or throwing curtains out there or wasting our time on curtains, but because it's a foreshadowing of how much God wants us to follow his instructions, to live fervently, faithfully, and righteously for him. Not for our own sakes. Heck, he's God, not even for his own sake, but for the world to see him in us. Because if all the world sees when they look at us as quote-unquote believers in the blood of the Lamb, as quote-unquote believers in Messiah Yeshua, if all they see is the same Joe Schmo that's standing next to them every other day, we're not a light into the world. We're not set apart righteous and holy. Because if we look like the world around us, it's one thing to live in it, but if we look like the world around us, they're not seeing him in us. And if they're not seeing him in us, it doesn't matter how much we preach the gospel. They're going to look right through the gospel and see who we are, who we really are. But if when they look at us, they see the glory of God residing upon us first and foremost. They see the presence of the living God of all creation that dwelt among, upon the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, dwelt upon the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, that fell upon the believers in Acts chapter 2 at the temple. If they see that in us, from the get-go, from the very beginning, the moment they see us, then they'll realize something's different. And then our words aren't just words. The gospel coming from us is not just words. It is life-giving. It is life-changing. It impacts people. We can't look at things like the, the description of the building of the tabernacle and merely look at this and go, well, that was a cool old thing. That was something for Israel lost in the wilderness. But what about us today? How does this affect my life today? See, most believers, they don't read anything before Matthew. Matthew through Revelation, that's all that really matters for most believers. But how are we to understand Jewish texts of Matthew through Revelation through Jewish eyes who wrote them, quoting Jewish texts that were written before them from Genesis through Chronicles and the Jewish ordering or Genesis through Malachi and the Christian ordering? If we can't understand what is quoted, you know, the book of Hebrews, the largest quoted part of the Bible in the book of Hebrews is Psalms. If we can't understand Psalms, we can't understand Hebrews. Throughout the throughout the New Testament, we read quotation from the Torah, the prophets, the writings, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, over and over again throughout the scriptures. And if we can't understand that, which is the basis of the New Testament, we're never going to fully grasp the New Testament. We have to be a willing participant in the Lord's work in our lives because God's never going to make us do anything. That's why there's so many quote-unquote fire insurance believers running around out there whose lives never change. They go to services every week. They raise their hands. They do what's supposed to be done. They're seen. They're part of the country club. But their lives never change. Their impact never changes. The Lord says we will be known by our fruit. But if the fruit is not a mirror image of what's in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Moses is told on Mount Sinai, build the tabernacle exactly as you see in heaven. The world will not see what we hope they'll see in our lives. They must see a willing 
sacrifice of worship. They must see a willing place for the presence of the Lord to reside. They must see a willing temporal dwelling place. And look, temporal is very literal when it comes to our lives. The tabernacle itself stood in Shiloh itself, uh, area in, in the north of Israel in Samaria, stood in Shiloh for 370 some odd years. And it wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before that, or uh, 39 years before that. Uh, and then on top of that, we also had uh, time between then when Israel was conquering the promised land before it was put in Shiloh. It stood for 400 and 400 or 450 years, give or take, before the temple was ever built. This is the temporal dwelling place, right? We're even more temporal. We're lucky if we hit 70 years, right? We're lucky if we hit 70 years. We might go beyond, but the reality is, is that temporal gap of time that we have from ultimately acceptance of Messiah's atonement till death, that's our window of opportunity to impact this world for the kingdom of Messiah. That's our impact opportunity to be a willing vessel for the Lord's presence to reside in the midst of his creation so that the world around us will see what we have, want what we have, and walk it out. So I want to encourage you this morning to realize that faith in Messiah is not simply about repeating a prayer. Faith in Messiah is not simply about showing up somewhere once a week, twice a week, three times a week. Faith in Messiah is not simply about taking part in food pantries or, or, or whatever else we could think of that tends to happen within body of Messiah. It's not about going to Bible study on Tuesday night or prayer meetings on Wednesday nights. Um, I want to make sure nobody thinks we're picking on everybody else while not on us because we do stuff too. It's not about the stuff. It's about how our lives truly are lived. It's about whether or not we are a willing vessel for the presence of the Lord. It's about whether or not we are willing to allow the Lord to breathe new life into our lives and to create within us a temporal dwelling place for His presence. Because it's only His presence in our lives that will impact the world around us, not our words. It doesn't matter how well you can quote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If your life isn't right with the Lord, if people don't see... Now, that doesn't mean you have to be perfect because we're all going to fail. Part of being right with the Lord is recognizing the need for repentance, recognizing the need for falling on our faces before the Lord and asking for His grace and mercy again and again and again and again. Repentance, teshuvah in Hebrew, to return. Stop what you're doing. Turn around and walk back to the loving embrace of the Father. Not oh Lord, I messed up again, forgive me, and we go about doing the same thing over again. There's an actual change, a transition in action. We're called to be that willing part. The Lord says, take up an offering only from those that are willing. Are you willing to be the tabernacle of the Lord? Are you willing to truly walk out your faith in Messiah, letting him change every little minute detail of your life to make you more in his image and likeness? Are you willing to allow him to take the time to waste the words of chapters about curtains and clothing and garments and poles so that he can make your life modeled after heaven? Are you willing to let his presence reside within you? Or do you just want to go on being status quo and not affecting the world and producing no fruit and changing no lives and impacting nothing for the kingdom of God? Because we've got enough of those people running around. The kingdom needs a mishkan. The kingdom needs a tabernacle, a temporal dwelling place. And that's why he chose you and I. And now it's time that we return that favor and truly choose him. 
willingly serve him and give him our all. Amen. Abarachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you. We glorify your holy name. Father, I pray that as we continue to push through this year's uh, Torah cycle, as we continue to gather every Shabbat and worship before you, that, Father, you will continue to mold us more and more and more in your image and likeness. Make us a worthy place for your presence to reside, not for our sakes, but for yours, not for our purposes, but for yours, that the world around us will know that the presence of God is in their midst when we are there that they will not just see some Joe Schmo walking around, but they will see a son or daughter of righteousness, a prince or princess of the king, the king's koanim, the king's priesthood. Make us holy before you. Make us kedoshim, holy ones. Make us zedachim, righteous ones. Make us worthy of your presence in our lives. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen and amen.